Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is just beginning to recruit trail ambassadors on the northern Oregon coast to help people engage with their public lands. We'll tell you how to get involved just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to come out and experience the change in seasons, but also be well prepared for whatever spring can bring. All right. In today's episode, we're traveling to a place that's technically for the birds, but actually provides some of the best close-to-home hiking in the Willamette Valley. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Alright, in today's episode, we're talking about getting outdoors in the unique and historic wildlife refuges of the Mid-Willamette Valley. Although they're often overlooked, there is over 10,000 acres of forest, hills, and ponds packed with wildlife and just a short drive from cities like Salem, Albany, and Corvallis. Today, we're going to talk about the best hikes, along with the plenty of ecology and history centered on Ankeny, Basket Slough, and William L. Thinley Wildlife Refuges. To guide us on our journey, we're joined by Sam Bartling, Visitor Services Manager for the Willamette Valley Refuge System. Sam, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to join you. Thanks for having me. All right. So right off the top, what's your favorite thing about the Willamette Refuges? If you live in the valley and haven't considered checking them out before, what are you missing out on? Ooh, well, a lot. Um, no, and you're not missing out because they're there. They're open every day from dawn to dusk and, and everything's free. And so there's always an opportunity to get out. And it really is your nearby nature, super accessible um, and really special. Uh, they're just they're places you're almost like you're stepping into the wild because we do everything for wildlife. They're places for wildlife to thrive. Um, we really feel that doesn't exclude people because places where wildlife thrive, that's where people thrive, too. I always have people say, you know, I had an experience there that I've never had before, or I saw something at William L. Finley Refuge that I've never seen before. Um, it's really up close wildlife. It's just unique and special family time is what a lot of people say that they're out there to do. Obviously, a lot of people are out there to see the birds. Uh, we're really established and we'll get into that, but we're established for migratory birds and waterfowl. Um, and so we, and we have a ton of it, over 200 species of birds alone, um, let alone all the mammals, amphibians, plant life. I mean, they're just amazing, just nature escapes and sanctuaries for people and wildlife. Great. Yeah. So what would you say distinguishes a wildlife refuge from a place like a state park or a national forest? I mean, I know there's some extra rules. Uh, dogs aren't allowed. Uh, there's no biking uh, and even no jogging on the on the trail. So mm -hmm. what else distinguishes a refuge uh, as a type of public land and why does it have that special designation? And that's a really good question because so National Wildlife Refuges and it's a whole system of public lands and there's 560 
568 National Wildlife Refuges right now, and it does continue to grow, which is wonderful. So right now we stand at 568, and these three refuges are the ones closest to folks in the Mid-Willamette Valley. And really our mission, it kind of boils down to being wildlife first. And I say that in the sense, again, I'm not trying to leave people out because it's for um, the American people and with the American people. We do a lot with public use and recreation. That's a big part of our mandate and what we're required to manage and provide for. Um, But really, that wildlife first part is what makes us so unique. Because if you look at a state park or a city park, you see playgrounds, you see bark chips, you might see a ball field. And those are amazing features and resources for people, right? Safe recreation. Um, But at the same time, if you actually look at that, it's like how much of that is actually habitat for wildlife? Um, Bark chips and mowed grass, you know, there's some habitat value there, but you're not going to see the diversity of wildlife that you would, let's say, a wildlife refuge where everything we do is with a purpose and an intent to for wildlife, for animals. Truly, a wildlife refuge is an animal's home and for so many different species of wildlife, you know? Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, they are the home of the wildlife. It's wildlife first. And when humans come, they're they're welcome, uh, but they're visitors. And, you know, they come through, have a kind of a minimal impact and then and then leave their home. So one one big difference uh, that that obviously sticks out and is relevant right now is what's open based on season. So there's kind of a, a quiet season, maybe uh, during kind of the winter periods. And then as we get into April, more land opens up for human exploring. I believe it's April 1st when that happens. So can you kind of break that down and explain, you know, the reasoning there and, and why you frame it that way? Yeah, I think you said it brilliantly, too. It's just that like, you know, these are places for you know, the wildlife's home and we're visitors or humans are visitors. And so when you do visit, that's where those kind of those rules or where it might seem like there's more rules than other places you might go. But that's why it's because we want to be kind visitors when we come to a wildlife's home. We don't want to just barge in the door and like make a ruckus. And so that's where like, you know, the jogging, uh, we don't allow jogging or trail running because that just triggers a stress response in animals. They see basically a person on two legs and it's predator run and so that's going to really stress out an animal and that's not being a kind visitor same thing with collection it's really tempting sometimes to basically you know pick a flower or grab that berry because it looks delicious um but everything is habitat to someone so we just ask that people look with their eyes or if you're flipping over that rock amazing what did you find but then put it back um because you know this is the animal underneath there is going to need its cover back (laughs) okay so Along with those rules, uh, there's also a seasonal closure. Um, I think you call it sanctuary season. And it's not the entire refuge. There's a few trails that do remain open year round, but a lot of the trails do shut down. So what's, what's going on there? So sanctuary season starts, so for Basket Slough and Ankeny, they're a little bit farther north. Their sanctuary season starts a little bit earlier than at William L. Finley Refuge. That actually starts, so for Ankeny and Basket Slough, it's October 1. And for William L. Finley Refuge, it's on November 1. And that sanctuary extends all the way until March 31st, April 1st, sanctuary lifts or we come out of sanctuary season. And what I mean by sanctuary season is is, is basically that it's sanctuary for wintering wildlife for waterfowl because so the Willamette Valley refuges, we support the largest number of wintering dusky geese and we're also... um, We also host the most waterfowl in Western Oregon, south of the Columbia River. So we're incredibly important places for these um, birds to be able to rest and recover. 
and it's a part of their life. Like this is where they spend their winter time. And if you think about it, they've just traveled long distances. So they have just had a brood of baby birds, they're exhausted parents, and they need to get all the way back to their wintering grounds. And this is in the case of geese. And it depends on the species, of course, but let's say we're a dusky, for example, you're in the Copper River Delta, you just had your nest, they all successfully fledged, you're thrilled. And now you need to head back down to the Willamette Valley, back to the Willamette Valley refuges to spend your winter. So you're arriving in the winter and you're landing in these wetlands and you're basically sleeping or roosting on the water. And then you're going into these agricultural fields and into these prairies to feed on grass, to eat your grass, have a grass buffet, and then back into the wetlands and into the water to rest and roost at night. And so it's really that resting time. Because if we had opened, if we left all the trails open throughout all of the year, Imagine what happens again, you're a human, you're a predator, you're walking on that berm or that just that earthen um, ground uh, at the edge of one of those marshes. Again, you're a predator, the, the goose is going to fly off. Mm-hmm. And just think of all the energy it's going to take to flap those wings and get up off the water and go find another place to rest. So yeah. that's going to deplete your energy reserves. And then you need to be able to get back to the copper for Delta in the summer to start your life cycle all over again and have a whole nother brood. And so we need to make sure that those um, birds have that space to rest and recover. Okay. And so that explains kind of the sanctuary season aspect of Mm -hmm. it. And then Mm -hmm. that, that lifts, you know, right around April 1st, is that when they usually take off and fly and there's, there's less birds there or uh, what allows you to open up more terrain uh, post April 1st? Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of crossover because there's still a lot of geese here. So they have already started to migrate because I feel like we're at March, um, you know, March 24th today. And Mm -hmm. so some birds have already started to migrate to their summer grounds. Um, And some are, many are still here though. So a lot of the birds won't really leave until April and even into early May. So you're still seeing um, a lot of the wintering um, species at the Willamette Valley refuges right now. But we kind of did a marker of like, you know, it's a shift, right? It's a season change. And so it allows us to open up more opportunities for recreation across more of the refuges, knowing that a lot of the birds have already started to fly off. Their sanctuary season, their resting and recovering time is over and they're headed off. And it's also migration season. So we're getting a lot of those spring, spring migrants coming through. So we're watching water levels to make sure that there's enough water there for the birds passing through, that they can stop, rest and recover, and then continue on their journeys north or south. Gotcha. Well, I wanted to you know, start next by kind of describing a little bit of what you're seeing out there. If you've been to the wildlife refuge, you know, you kind of see there's some oak savanna, there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, ponds, there's a lot of grass, it's kind of big hills, but birds and wildlife, as you mentioned, are the big attraction here and are very popular with uh, bird watchers and avian photographers. So when you go, what are some of the birds that might be a little easier to pick out? Like, you know, some of the stars of the show. And then what what, what are a few that are maybe harder to see that uh, might be more in the background, but are kind of rewarding for like a birder? Oh, yeah. I like your, the bird journey. Like, so if you were to go to the refuges, and we're really well known for that, if you want to see birds, if you want a photographer, for, take photographs of birds or just watch birds, which a lot of people like to do, your Willamette Valley refuges are the place to go. Um, and so what you're going to see really commonly, uh, let's say you're at Ankeny and you want to see eagles. There is a ton of eagle activity at Ankeny. Um, and we have we have eagles at all the refuges, bald eagles at all the refuges. We have some golden eagles too, especially down at William L. Finley's where they're seen um, 
uh, most often of the three refuges. But the bald eagles, they, they're actually fighting over territory now. The habitat is so great that they're fighting over territory. So there's some pretty intense interactions and clashes between adult eagles and juvenile eagles at Ankeny. If you want to try and watch them pick off some ducks, go hunting because they'll just basically fly <laughs> over some of the marshes. And it's so, I mean, they are smart and they'll just fly over kind of like as a little bit of a trickery and they'll fly over the ducks on the water. And they'll, and of course the ducks are going to take off, right? Predator, fly, flee, save yourself, survival. Well, the slowest one is the one that they're going to hone in on and pick off. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have to use much of their energy to be able to get their meal. So it's a really smart hunting tactic. So if you're at Ankeny, go to um, Pintail Marsh. And if you're on Wintel Road, you see the brown sign that says um, photo blind and with an arrow. And it's basically just a little bit of like a, a little U-shaped driveway. There's a new kiosk there and bike racks are going to go in right there. So if you're on your bike, you can park your bike there and just hang out at the marsh for a while. And you'll see a row of vehicles too. There's lots of regulars. It's where the regulars hang out. And there's a little bit of like kind of an underground um, photography competition of who can get the best action shots. And there's just so many eagles there all the time that that is just a hangout for a lot of people wanting to see wildlife. Another one that's really good and easy to see this time of year, especially as we get into spring. And again, birds are getting territorial. Um, They're trying to find mates, they're breeding. Uh, Red-winged blackbirds, they have a really distinctive call and they have those really bright red feathers on their wings unlike the shoulders of the rings, hence the name, you know, red-winged blackbirds. And so they're really fun to watch along the edges of the marshes um, on the wetland vegetation because they're just perched up there singing and talking and kind of fighting with each other, the males are, and telling the females, look at me, look at me, you want to meet with me. (laughs) (laughs) So those are some, in the winter though, we're really well known for our swans, trumpeter swans, tundra swans, and swan season for us. And they're at all of the wetlands at any of the refuges. So just go to your nearest one. And you'll see that it's usually December, January, and February is swan season. If you want to see pelicans, those are kind of in the fall. And again, you can see those at most of the wetlands at all three of the refuges. Um, do you have a favorite bird? I can tell you a best place to see it potentially. Um, my favorite bird is the great blue heron. Oh, um, <laughs> and I've definitely I've definitely seen them at the wildlife refuges when I travel there. Um, but yeah, that's that's my favorite. Yep. That's a great one. They're so fun. You can watch them hunt. I mean, they're just, uh, and they're not very picky because you'll see them out in the farm fields too. So they'll eat rodents and basically just stick their beaks right down into some of those holes and grab what they want. But then you'll see them hunting for fish in the marshes too. So they're really good generalists, you know, and they'll just find good food all over the place. And they're just so striking and beautiful. They're just fun because they're, you know, those kind of bird that they're really easy to spot and you can identify mm-hmm. them very carefully, you know, right away because they have the, the, the kind of oddly shaped like long neck and they're just, they, they really stick out. And I, I like to whitewater kayak. And so when I go down these little creeks and stuff, you'll see them kind of flying overhead a lot. And I think they're pretty common, but what are some more, what are some rare ones? Like if you were a, a birder out looking for, I don't know, like like something that uh, most people didn't mm-hmm. see all the time. What what would be a few examples that you could see? Oh, and we do have lots because we definitely are a place where you see those kind of like once in a lifetime or those really rare sightings. You know, the the ones that eBird is you know people are documenting, and then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh my goodness, there's a what where? And then they're <laughs> flocking like in you know pun intended to wherever that bird was sighted. You know, one example is the bean goose that was spotted at uh, William L. Finley Refuge. It was only 
oh gosh, one of six times it was ever seen in the lower 48. Um, and it was at Finley and it was just hanging out with a flock of geese. Um, so that one, folks, we had folks flying from the East Coast out to see that bean goose. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> the long-eared owls roosting or sleeping in the trees during the day. There was, you know, they communally roost in the winter. Um, and so there were like, you know, at times six of them just in the trees sleeping off of rail trail at Ankeny. We often have, so streaked horn larks, we have critical habitat, a really important and designated critical habitat for this uh, threatened bird. And um, you can see them right this time of year, they're flying around with the pipits, which is a type of shorebird. So if you're good with your birds or just want to grab a, a bird book and see what a streaked horn lark looks like and a pipit, they are flying together this time of year in the winter. And they love to, the streaked horn lark, they make their nests in farm fields. And so a lot of our farm fields are not only providing um forage or food for geese, but it's great nesting habitat for our streaked horn larks. Well, before we get rolling and start talking kind of about the specific uh, three wildlife refuges that we're going to take a little deep, deeper dive into, uh, I wanted to ask you about season and the best months to get out there. You mentioned migration season and, and that makes sense, but you know, is it spring and fall? Are those kind of generally the most pleasant times to be out there? Or uh, what would you advise you know, for somebody who hadn't been to the refuge as much and was thinking about putting it on their calendar? Uh, really, I think like I always encourage people to come back in all the seasons um, because there is just so much more like you can just see so many different things. It's almost like you've landed in a, a whole different place. I mean, in the fall, it's like I mean, you're seeing migration for once. So you're seeing species that you haven't seen throughout the summer or even in the winter. You're just seeing them pass through. But you're also seeing the leaves change. So you're getting these beautiful like the big leaf maples, the ash trees. So you're getting all those like leaf change. The uh, color change was just just beautiful and we've definitely hit some um top lists for fall foliage where to go to see fall foliage so if that interests you just you know the scenic value and scenic beauty in the fall the wildlife refuges are incredible places to go um, wildlife wise um, and activity wise we do have elk and deer hunts at uh, finley national wildlife refuge if that's the hobby that you're into um so that's the, some fall activities for folks. I did want to mention we have fishing at Snagboat Bend, if that's what you and your family are into. Uh, in the winter is when you're going to see a lot of those winter residents come through and the marshes just are, oh my goodness, they come to life with the birds. I mean, it's I mean, the noises. <laughs> if you visit the refuges in the winter, the sounds are just incredible. All of a sudden, let's say a coyote walks through a field or an eagle is on the hunt, you know, and the flock of bird, the flock of geese take off. Oh my goodness, the noise. It just, you can almost feel it in your body. And then they'll take flight, you know, and then you'll see them circle around and then they'll come back down. But to see thousands of birds take flight and then land again, is just really spectacular. And then as spring comes on and you get like, I mean, um, everything starts to bud out. I know you've probably noticed uh, the swallows. I've been seeing mm -hmm. more swallows in the last few days. And then I've been seeing turkey vultures for at least a couple weeks now. So you start to see the spring migrants arrive and that's like, whoop, spring is here. Um, and I would say winter is one of the best time to see the Roosevelt elk, if elk is something that you want to look for. And we do have elk herds at all three of the refuges. Finley has the largest and we can talk more about that when we get to Finley. <laughs> and then summer, of course, is just amazing weather and all of the trails, all of the interior of the refuges open. Um, and you're free to wander. If you see a service road on there, like that's, you can, I mean, go head out, walk on that and go check it out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so just as far as access to different areas of the refuges, I know a lot of people really look forward and celebrate uh, sanctuary lifting and being able to get out and really take some longer hikes and just um, really just go deeper into the refuges and some of those trails. All right. Well, the first place that we're going to visit is my personal favorite, and that is Ankeny National Wildlife Refuge. It's a refuge that's been in the news lately with the opening of the brand new and beautiful Nature Center that has been (laughs) 15 years in the making. So, Sam, to start (laughs) off, um, tell us what you'll find at this new Nature Center, uh, what people can experience um, if they go out there this spring. So bring me through some of the new trails and the new buildings that you'll find in that little spot. Yeah. Oh, we are so excited. Like you mentioned, this is a long time coming and I can't even tell you, like we had to do a soft opening because we opened on February 5th with a welcome week and just, you know, still within COVID, you know what I mean? And so we had to do a kind of a, we did open week and a little bit of a soft opening. So we will have more of like a formal celebration later, but I cannot tell you how excited we were to throw open those gates and introduce people to their nature center. And it just, it really did feel like, oh, finally. Yes. And so what you're going to find as you go through those gates and up the road, you'll pass a little building on your left. And that's also overflow parking, but that's our volunteer base camp. So we have dedicated space for volunteers because they're really the heart of everything that we do. Those volunteers do so much from programming to maintenance, um, interpretation, uh, school groups, like, you know, it's, it's huge. So they have their own little space. That's the volunteer base camp. And when you come up to the top of the hill in the parking lot, we have bus parking there because obviously we want to facilitate as many school groups as we can at the nature center. You'll see bike racks with really neat shadow design cutouts on them. You'll see a kiosk, um, the restrooms that are, um, they're family restrooms. Um, you'll see a nature explore area. And this we're really excited about. It's basically like a, a natural playground. It's a place to just be free, go crazy. Like, you know, build a fort in the fort building area, um, kind of hide out in the shade of, um, all the shrubs over in kind of our, a little bit of our, um, uh, an over by our wetland feature. There's a little, a modified wetland scrape with a bridge over it. There's a grassy mound. There's trails connecting everything. Uh, there's a tunnel that you can go through made of alder trees and they're all native species. So of course they're attracting pollinators. There's bluebirds flying all over the kestrels always around the turkey vultures were out. There's a red tailed hawk that nests nearby. Um, the coyote keeps wandering through cause it loves to hunt the fields and the prairie. So tons of wildlife to see the outdoor classroom doubles as a picnic area. So you'll see a little kid uh, picnic table and you'll see two adult ones and there's um, an accessible picnic table as well. The trails, there's two trails. There's the inner loop trail or little loop trail and big loop trail. And so you can, uh, especially around the nature explore area, let your kiddos play in the nature explore area. And then the parents and guardians can just walk loops around and always have eyes on their kiddos and vice versa. And then you can have a little free space to just kind of make that loop and walk around, stop at the Oak Overlook if you want to, and just take in the scenery and know that the kiddos are having a ball in the nature explore area. And that's, um, I love that design feature. That is, that is appreciated for those of us with, with little kids to, you know, let them play and then get a little space to, mm-hmm. to get around a little bit. 
Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And the nature explore area was like sections of it. Um, we have, um, we're letting the grass grow. We've got California brome and Alaska brome, these native grass species. They're supposed to get up to like five feet high so that kids can actually run through the grass, hide in the grass, and we'll mow a path <laughs> through it too. So stay tuned. Like some of the features within the nature explore area are going to just get cooler and cooler as time goes on. Um, but then there's uh, the indoor classroom of Geller Hall, and we have a roll-up lab door. We have got all of these curriculum resources, discovery tools, backpacks, so programming. Um, we've got a lot. We have an active volunteer program that's you know onboarding volunteers, and they're doing habitat work, and they'll be doing interp work. The Peregrine Marsh down below, and you've, you'll see the parking lot down there. And that's because that's essentially the staging ground for a next phase, which is the Dave Marshall Outdoor Classroom that is going to also double as a public use space as a blind to see birds and wildlife right there perched on the edge of Peregrine Marsh. We have some education nodes that are going in. And so those will be around um, habitats and homes. There's a wetland uh, education node. There's going to be a Kalapuya First People uh, node as well. And then we also have a story walk. We're working really hard on a the pollinator node is going to be the next one that gets implemented. And that one's going to be right next to the nature explorer area and the outdoor classroom. And then, yeah. of course, Geller Hall. The, what you're looking at right now when you go out there is just just first the first part of that building. We have plans in the future with Salem Audubon and the Friends to expand that and have kind of more of a visitor center-esque vestibule in the, um, as a front entrance with education interp space. And then there'll be a, um, another classroom and some office space to be able to accommodate that with, have more capacity to do a lot mm. more there out at the center. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there now and, and more to even to come. But I wanted to touch a little bit on the backstory of the Nature Center, just because it's kind of a fun little tale of perseverance. Um, it started back in 2014 with a, a gift from Salem businessman and the co-founder of Oregon Fruit Products, uh, Mark Geller, who you've mentioned a little bit. He gave the Salem Audubon Society $1.35 million with the idea of creating a nature center. So, you know, the hope was it would become this community gathering place. And the original idea was to put it in West Salem at a little place called the Salem Nature Reserve. I used to live right next to it. It's this really fun little urban trail. But it, realistically, it was too small to have a big nature center there. So the Audubon Society started looking. They considered dozens of different sites over the course of a decade. And But the reality was that $1.35 million sounds like a lot, but it just wasn't enough to both purchase the land, cover the building expenses. They kind of needed help. And they were sort of stuck until they came up with a novel idea instead of Doing it all themselves, they partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they were able to get it on a stunning location on public land, uh, get a bunch of extra grant money. So they kind of turned their $1.35 million into a project that's $3.5 million. So mm -hmm. Sam, for Fish and Wildlife side, why was this a, a good partnership? Why, how did this all come together? When we have a partner that has, you know, has that shared passion for inspiring a love for nature, connecting people to their local wildlife refuges and having this community space to do environmental education and to do all of that. Oh my goodness. It's everything. And 
So when we were able to team up, like you said, it just kind of merged our resources and it also upped our leverage and upped our game because we were able to show that, look, we have this nonprofit group, Salem Audubon Society. We have a bequest. And then we've also got this, you know, the government entity, the friends group, which is another nonprofit. And we all three joined forces um, to make this happen. And, you know, like you said, to continue with the other phases of all of this work. Um, And it's, I can't say enough amazing things about the partnership. Well, I wanted to add that the you know the Nature Center is is definitely the big highlight here, and and it's worth checking out. And now's a great time to do it this spring, especially. But um, there's a lot of other stuff at Ankeny to visit as well. One of my favorite hikes over there, which you mentioned a little bit, is the the rail trail um, in a different part of the park. There's kind of a one mile trail that follows a little boardwalk out through Riparian Forest across a marsh that really lights up with the sounds of birds and wildlife in the spring. Then there's a fun little observation post that looks like the turret of a castle. Um, and that's always makes a great stopping point for kids. You can kind of feel like you're going into a little castle. And then you can, you can look out over Wood Duck Pond. There's some of the great blue herons I mentioned that you can see out there. Just a really good spot for kids. And uh, in the season when it's open, you can extend it for at least four miles, I believe, uh, you know, kind of looking at, at the map. So Sam, besides the rail trail and maybe along with it, what are some other good spots worth visiting in Ankeny? Oh, definitely. And again, like seasonality, if you're visiting in the winter, then a lot of those pullouts using your car as a blind or Eagle Marsh, there's a blind there for you. You mentioned rail trail, there's a blind there. Pintail Egret Boardwalk, it's the shorter boardwalk, just a little bit farther. It's basically to the east of rail trail, but there's a whole nother boardwalk trail that a lot of folks don't know about. And it also ends on a really neat blind that you mentioned. Yeah, kids love to turn into a little bit of like a... um, Oh, like a secret hidey hole, you know, mm-hmm. and the castle feature. That's so true because you'll see kids kind of pop out and you're just like, oh, well, <laughs> I'll stop by the blind next time I'm going back through. It's occupied right now. Um, rail trail, like you said, the beaver activity there um, is really fun to watch because you can just you can see the chew marks. You can see the signs of beaver at any time, even if you're not actually seeing the beaver itself. And then you mentioned, too, if we're not in sanctuary is, you know, move on past the boardwalk and follow those berms around. Um make those bigger loops. Um, And definitely if you're over at um, Pintail Marsh that we've talked about, you know, follow those berms and Eagle Marsh too. I mean, look, there's a gate there right now in the winter and we usually do keep those gates closed, but you'll see that where the no hiking sign, it gets changed out and it becomes a hiker. The red slash goes away and we encourage people to go through that gate and follow those uh, berms around and see what they can see. But you can go all over in the interior. So I would encourage people at Ankeny, um, April 1st, Sanctuary Lifts. And so park in the normal spot that you might, but then take your trail farther out this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of train to explore. All right. Well, we're going to take a minute to hear from two of our sponsors. When we return, we're going to dive into the reason the Willamette Valley refuges exist historically and talk about two more great places to visit. So that's when we return. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At A4C, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. 
We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. The next message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Trail Keepers of Oregon are looking for trail ambassadors to help out on the North Coast for the 2022 season. Volunteers hang out at popular trailheads on the North Coast to engage with visitors about safety, ethical use of public lands, and leave no trace practices, as well as sharing opportunities for visitors to engage with local communities. It's a way to give back to the trails we all love. All it takes to become an ambassador is taking a virtual training that can be done on your own time and will equip you to feel confident about talking to visitors as they start their recreation adventure. To get started, email Trailkeepers Engagement Manager Natalie Ferrero at natalie.ferrero at trailkeepersoforegon.org. So once again, and I'm going to spell it, it's n-a-t-a-l-i-e dot f E-R-R-A-R-O at trailkeepersoforegon, which is all one word, dot org. All right, welcome back. Well, one of the more interesting stories about the wildlife refuges is how they even happen to begin with. They're smack in the middle of busy farmland in one of the most fertile areas on Earth. So, Sam, what's the answer here? What was the idea of the refuges to begin with and how has that played out over the years? Yeah, and really, I mean, kind of boils down to a goose. And not just any goose, uh, the dusky Canada goose. And it's, um, it's, it's one of the rarest populations of waterfowl in North America. There's about 15,000 in the total population. And in 1964, there's the Great Alaskan Earthquake. It raised the Copper River Delta by five feet, which essentially dried out the wetlands. And so that it was detrimental to the population because they lost a lot of nests. When those wetlands dry out, all of a sudden foxes and coyotes can get in there and they can eat or depredate the eggs. And so you saw the population really take a hit. And plus you saw in the Willamette Valley where um, the dusky it has a really narrow range which means it's had Scott, it likes to summer just in one place and winter just in one other place. It doesn't have a lot of variability or places, other places that it likes to go. So if it runs into issues in either of those places, then you see the numbers start to plummet. In the Willamette Valley too, you saw a lot of like land change. And so a lot of habitats um, kind of went away from native into other uses. I mean, makes sense. The Willamette Valley is an incredible agricultural and um, mecca and place to live. So you see cities and just other uses for the land. And so the goose lost some habitat. And so in 1964, and obviously there was lead up to this, it all just didn't happen in 1964, but 1964 and 1965 is when all three of the refuges were established. And they were established for the dusky Canada goose to preserve some of those wintering grounds. Um, the, the duskies do go a little bit farther north and a little bit farther south but they predominantly, they spend all of their winter in the Willamette Valley and predominantly on these refuges. And so when they were looking at places to establish 
where could we have these wintering grounds for the dusky Canada goose? Um, they found, you know, Basket Slough, Ankeny, and William L. Finley. Um, the land was either purchased or donated. Nothing was eminent domain. No land was taken from anyone. I always make a point of saying that. Um, and so they looked at these places in the Willamette Valley and said, well, these would be thriving places for waterfowl and migratory mm -hmm. birds. And that's when they did have to do a lot of work over restoration. In the 1990s and the 2000s is when you saw a lot of work happening at the, across the refuges doing wetland work, mm -hmm. um, establishing those wetlands. And then, you know, beyond that, working a lot in the uplands, you know, so you see the upland prairie, the oak savanna work um, to favor the uh, the Fender's blue butterfly and all those threatened endangered species within those um, endangered habitat types of upland prairie and wetland prairie. Um, so that was the really, it boils down to the dusky but then in addition to that, we do a lot of threatened endangered species um, work and habitat management and recreation. Those are our big objectives as to why these refuges exist and what it is we are charged with doing. Well, I'm curious, you know, what this is one thing I've heard from time to time, and I've never actually given an official question or anything like that. But I've heard that the refuges serve to lure birds that might otherwise like feed on farmland to mm -hmm. the refuges instead. So are they serving as kind of a magnet like, hey, come here and be safe instead of being on, you know, this farmer's land where you're going to be in trouble? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're spot on. Because I mean, if you think about it, like, when I tell people that, you know, we were established for the dusky to provide habitat for this rare goose, you know, you'll kind of see them stop and maybe look up and be like, well, I don't, what do you mean? There's geese everywhere. There's thousands of geese here in the valley. And it's true. But the goose family is really large. And within that large goose family, there's seven subspecies of which the dusky is just one. And the cackling Canada goose, when you look, look up into the skies or you see those huge flocks, those are largely cackling geese which is a different species. And so, and it's the cacklers that used to really spend most of their wintering lives down in California. And they almost wholesale moved themselves up to the Willamette Valley. I mean, and you can't blame the goose, grassy capital of the world. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that is like, again, the grass buffet. I'm, I'm hanging out there. Thank you very much. And look at this incredible habitat. I'm hanging out here. But so you saw this huge influx of geese staying in the valley uh, throughout the winter. So it's not just those 15,000 duskies. Do you know what I mean? It's the, mm -hmm. we host around 400,000 geese in the valley and it's largely cacklers. And so, and that puts a lot of pressure on private land and farmers that are, you know, raising grass seed, which is an incredibly important commodity. And so we really try to, um, like the dusky, there are, there are trust species where uh, we're founded to provide for them. And so we're trying to provide as much feed as we can for those geese to take the pressure off of private lands. And then I'm not going to lie, the elk wander through and are like, hey, thank you. <laughs> Hoof high five. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is fantastic. So obviously some of those farm fields are benefit other species. And I already mentioned the streaked horn larks. But everything that you see across those refuges, when you're looking out and wondering, why is there a farm field there? Why are they taking out those fir trees? It's all with intent. It's all with purpose and it's all with the habitat quality, habitat value, um, and thus wildlife thriving in mind. And how have the dusky numbers fared over the years? You mentioned, you know, 15,000, mm -hmm. you know, a little while back. Have those numbers stayed stable? They declined, increased? Yeah, good question. If since the Willamette Valley's were, uh, refuges were established, the numbers have definitely come up from those kind of early days and kind of like the, basically the, um, uh, you know, the trauma that the population uh, mm -hmm. endured right after the earthquake. But then it's, it continues to kind of, it is stabilized around that 15,000 mark. 
Okay, well, we're gonna, you know, that's that's a great little, you know, mini history lesson on this area. I'm sure there's there's a lot more you could you could even get into, but I wanted to jump out to uh, Basket Slough, uh, which you know is a refuge that's 15 minutes west of Salem, has a great trail system. Uh, for me, I've always enjoyed hiking there and the roads that wind through it. Uh, when I had when I had daughters, I lived in West Salem, and I needed to get them to sleep. I would actually drive them on the roads nice. uh, through the refuge, and it would put them did a really good job of, of putting them to sleep. And I could just kind of stop and look at birds and stuff like that. Uh, but for you, um, what sticks out about Basket Slough? Like, what makes it unique compared to the other ones in the in the system? Yeah, good question. It was established in 1965. It's like 2,500 acres. One of its claim to fame, for sure, is the fact that the the once thought extinct Fender's Blue Butterfly was found at Basket Slough in the 80s. They yeah. thought the Fender's Blue Butterfly was extinct. Lo and behold, you know, it was like <laughs> it was a local science teacher found this butterfly and said, well, that's interesting. I don't, that, I, I think this might be a Fender's Blue Butterfly. And then, you know, Fast forward a number of years, indeed it was. And so the, one of the largest populations of Fender's Blue Butterfly is found at Basket Butte. If you go up the Rich Wadagno Trail, that whole hillside, Basket Butte, you know, see those beautiful wildflowers in the spring, Fender's Blue Butterfly. Well, that's that's great. And well, let's talk about the the trail you mentioned. Um, the trail starts, and it's a pretty popular one. I would dare say it's one of the more popular ones, uh, definitely for Salem residents, just because you can get out there so quick. But it, you know, you drive down the Colville Road, um, you know, to the trailhead, and then there's a few different options. There's a year-round hike that you can take up through you know Oak Savannah, past some wildflowers, up to Basket Butte uh, that you were mentioning, you know, with a nice little overlook, and that's like mm -hmm. two miles, I think, out and back, and then. After April 1st, you can hike deeper into the interior. And I've done the loop around Morgan Lake, which is a yes. pretty interesting, interesting five mile loop in there where you're among this really tall grass and this really odd um, lake back there. And so it brings a lot to the to the to the table. I also wanted to mention Rich Guadagno and uh, the story behind him and the reason he there's a plaque form up there and the trails named for him is he was a former refuge manager at Basket Slough and he was a passenger on United Airlines Flight 93, uh, which, if you remember, crashed into the rural Pennsylvania countryside uh, during the 9-11 terrorist attacks. You know, the idea that they the passengers had stopped the plane from crashing into the White House or the Pentagon or something like that. So it was a, obviously a major story. And he was one of the passengers. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a really great profile written about him by our news cal uh, columnist, Cappy Lynn, that does a great job of capturing his remarkable life. And I'll post that with this episode. But Sam, uh, what, what else? Could you add about, you know, recreation and hiking at Basket Slough? We mentioned this pretty popular trail area. I know there's other stuff around there. So what, what other things would you say are worth exploring? Yeah, I think if you're um, going to spend some time at Basket or maybe on a, you know, you're going to hit the Rich Guadagno Trail um, one trip and then you want to do some other stops on future trips, definitely visit the Narrows and see some of the wildlife through there. Keep driving on Colville Road. You can loop yourself around till you get to Smithfield. And you mentioned Morgan Lake Reservoir, and that essentially is the gravity fed feature that brings water to all of the wetlands down below that eventually ends up at Dusky. And mm. so being able to walk around that really you know deep water reservoir, where you have deep water year round is where you're always gonna see some form of waterfowl and wildlife, you know, the, the herons that you like to see. So that's a great place that you mentioned. There's also a glacial erratic 
right there. And what it is basically it's a large boulder that was deposited during the Missoula floods. And so that's right off Smithfield Road, kind of right near the Morgan Lake entrance. You'll see a parking lot that you can pull in at. And so that would be one when sanctuary lifts park there on Smithfield Road and then just follow the trail on back. You can take a left and go up to Morgan Lake Reservoir. You can continue to the right, follow other wetlands, and you end up at the base of Basket Butte. So if you wanted to do like an epic hike, you, you could head all the way up Basket Butte and head it from the backside. So yeah. I always encourage people to head to the north side of the refuge off Smithfield. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's true. You know, once you get down there and you start like nosing around, you'll find a lot of really interesting spots that are kind of off the, the beaten track where, where most of the, most of the folks go. So, all right, I want to transition into the final, uh, the third and final wildlife refuge that we're going to talk about. Um, and this one is probably the largest and the farthest from Salem. And it's a William L. Finley National Wildlife Refuge. It's 5,325 acres located south of Corvallis, um, apparently named for a renowned photographer and conservationist who convinced President Theodore Roosevelt to establish the first wildlife refuge west of the Mississippi back in 1907. I have to admit that this is the refuge I've spent the least amount of time at because it's a little farther from mm -hmm. Salem. So Sam, same question here. What makes Finley stick out from the other two? Oh, good question. So Finley, yeah, so it is the largest. It also has a lot of upland acres. And so and initially when the refuges were established, they were really looking at um, wetland areas, you know, that would be really popular for the migratory birds and the waterfowl that'd be overwintering here. But they were able to persuade folks that these upland acres are also incredibly important for corridors, for connectors, for habitat value. And indeed, they were so right. So, and you can see it really, it's really evident at Finley because you have Pigeon Butte, you have Maple Knoll, you have Bald Top, and these are all kind of those little bit higher elevation in the valley features where you have the Oak Savanna, the upland prairie. And it's Oak Savanna, upland prairie that are, you know, we've only got about 2% of that left in the Willamette Valley. And really, that's what the, you know, what the refugees are known for, too, is these, you know, really rare and historic native habitat types that you can't see anywhere else and that are really some of the rarest in the world. And in fact, there's two research natural areas at Finley. One of them is Prairie Overlook. They believe it's the only place in the Willamette Valley that's never been plowed. And it's about 490 acres. And if you have never walked in a native wet prairie, and again, it's an, you know, we've you know, only got like that 2% left of these native prairies. So if you have never had a chance to walk in one, it's an experience all in and of itself. And they call it ankle twisters because as you're walking through the prairie, there's these huge ant mounds. The, the ants do not like wet feet. So, you know, they don't want to be in the wet. So they build these huge ant mounds to get up out of the wet, which makes it kind of really interesting to walk through. And it makes this really neat topography where you get these little like divots or indentations that hold water. And so you've got the plants that love the wet feet that live in those little like depressions. And then you have these ant mounds and there's plants that don't really want the super wet feet. And so they grow off of the ant mounds. So huge diversity of wildflowers. Again, you get your threatened endangered wildflowers in that um, prairie overlook. And it's the first stop that you come to at William L. Finley off of Highway 99. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting place to explore for sure. Uh, what are some of the better known hiking trails out there that uh, people generally hit and, uh, you know, to explore the area? Here we do have the Homer Campbell Boardwalk Trail, um, which is kind of akin to rail trail up at Ankeny where you're walking through that riparian habitat in the hardwood forest. But then it opens up on Cabo Marsh, which is one of the largest um, wetlands, the largest wetland at uh, Finley. And McFadden's is the other large one. So that's where you're going to see a lot of your waterfowl 
um, and your raptors hunting and, um, you know, again, your red-winged blackbirds, you know, different shorebirds, you know, to um, different times of year. So if you love that kind of thing, definitely stop by Cabell Marsh. Um, and then if you keep driving, you're heading towards Woodpecker Loop. A Woodpecker Loop is a 1.1 mile loop trail. That's a year round one. It's a discovery trail too. So you'll see that we have a lot of elements that are bilingual in both Spanish and English. And we have features like that at all the refs, especially at the Nature Center, because we did design that for the Latino community. Um, but at Woodpecker Loop, you we have habitat stanchions with curriculum cards in it that speak to the animals that live there. And we can switch that curriculum out. And there's an education shelter there and there's some critters that you can find. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to encourage everybody to go to Woodpecker Loop and try and find the hidden animals, the live <laughs> ones and the fake ones. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's like the largest population of red-legged frogs up at that pond that you walk by. There's a bench by it too at Woodpecker Loop. And just people wouldn't normally know that, but that's one of our you know rarest uh, native amphibians thrives there. There's also a visitor center out there. It's been closed. Do you know if that's going to be opening anytime soon? Because that also helps kind of like center the experience out there. Yeah, good question. Because we do, we've got the Wild Goose Nature Store there. So if you want to pick up a souvenir and that's run all by volunteers through the Friends of the Willamette Valley National Wildlife Refuge Complex. And we plan to open too. Right now, so we have a target date of uh, May is mm-hmm. when we think COVID protocols will lift and we'll be able to open those interior spaces. And that will include Geller Hall at the Nature Center as well, that we'll be able to open that indoor classroom for reservations and programming. And then likewise at Finley, our headquarters building, because that is our headquarters building for the whole complex. And then it's got that Wild Goose Nature Store in it and like a yeah, a little visitor contact area where if they have questions or want more information. Plus it's a great place to see the acorn woodpeckers. Um, it was a whole colony right there in the Oregon White Oaks. And then again, just a base out of there's great trails that lead straight from there. You're right. Okay. Well, I think we could probably circle for a landing here, like so many of the birds that fly among the refuges. Um, Anything else that we should know about Finley or any of the refuges in general before planning a trip out there? Oh, no, I think I just want to encourage everybody to go out Um, because we really just, I mean, like I said, they're right in your backyard. And you're going to experience something there that maybe you haven't anywhere else. And whether it's just family time or you just want to go out alone, I really, and I'm not just saying it, there really is something for everyone. Um, And like I said, free and open every day from dawn to dusk. So just really want to encourage people to make a trip out there. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a pretty good selling point. Free, uh, close to a lot of where people live, uh, beautiful, lots of wildlife. It's tough to beat. So I appreciate you taking uh, this time with me. Uh, once again, I've been speaking with Sam Bartling, the visitor services manager for the Willamette Valley Refuge Complex. Sam, thanks again so much for taking this time. Oh, thank you. I know I'll see you out there. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. We mentioned earlier that they're recruiting trail ambassadors, but if you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, 
swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamacoast.com slash recreation hyphen math. Once again, that's tillamacoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.